0: I'm Rob Forsyth. this is Liberalism in Question, a series of co- podcasts in which we examine issues and challenges to, liber- to liberalism today. My guest is Andrew Blythe, who is at the moment lecturer in Ideals and Power to the Cadets and Midshipmen at the New South Wales, um, University of New South Wales Canberra um, campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, Andrew has also served as Chief of Staff Andrews in the Liberal government. He's c- completing a doctorate in the areas of public leadership and was from 19, 2016 rather, to 2023 the um, manager of the John Howard Prime Minister Library and Exhibition in the Old Parliament House. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, great to be with you. Uh, let me start with the students. Yes. That teach.
0: From an old man asking a slightly younger man. <laughs> you're, you're teaching a a horde of uh, just out of school people, right? That's right. In, in ideals and power. What on earth are you telling them about ideals <laughs> and power?
1: So this is a group of uh, students, and, and, and it's, in fact, it's the largest cohort of students uh, for, the, for the subject that we teach. Right. And I teach it with Professor Clinton Fernandez. And there's 137 students in the semester that we just did. And it's interesting because they are roughly around 18, 19 yes. years of age. So they've come out of high school and they come from the eight different education systems into one, which is the University of New South Wales. But they've done well enough in school to uh, to, uh, be enrolled in a group of eight university and they come uh, also with the military training component uh, with their commitment. Um, But I find myself uh, quite um, thrilled to be standing in front of them at but in a lecture in a theatre, and, and just sharing what I know, but also learning from them as well.
0: Ideals and power. What's that? Yeah,
1: well, so it's, it comes under the international political uh, studies area, and it gives them an introduction into ideologies. Right. And for some of them, uh, I also touch on think tanks and pressure groups, and political donations. And for some, they didn't even they don't even know what a, th- a think tank is. Um, but what we do is we introduce some concepts, some are familiar to them and, and some are not. So we talk about you know, conservatism, liberalism, and uh, nationalism, socialism, so really giving them a, that broad brush of, of what's around them and introducing them to those those concepts.
0: Tell me about liberalism very briefly. Well, think, <laughs> what, what do you say it is?
1: Well, I think what we do is we say to them that Australia is the sixth oldest uh, democracy in the world, and right. it's it's a stable environment in which they um, they are a part of, and it, it it's actually one of those where there's been no military coups, um, and it's in and in fact we talk about the origins. We go back and actually say to them about in the lead up to federation, um, the conventions that were held, and almost a, a, a bureaucratic approach to to the uh, the forming of uh, the nation on the first of January nineteen. 19- so, we introduce slowly the, the environment in which they are now adults and, and will have a role in, in shaping the future of their country. But we also say to them, you don't need to know everything no. in the first semester.
0: No, of course not. Now, I'm just wondering when you talked about liberalism, what's your understanding of what liberalism is?
1: So, it talks, it so talks to them about the, the concepts around um, you know, liberal democracy and um, in terms of ideology that actually is, is, is around them, that they may have actually had views um, passed on to them from their parents. And we, so we talk about those very things about the, the uh, executive government and the parliament.
0: So you don't talk about liberalism as an ideal, as, as a, but rather a practical political reality. Yeah, I think
1: it's, it's- Is that right? Yes, because for some, you can get caught up in quite a lot of theory and, and so that they, it might go over their head. And so you sort of bring it down another level to actually sort practical uh, day-to-day what's going on around you. And we even talk about more recently, um, housing was an example that we brought up for them. Right. Um, how you might say, here's what a, um, a center left may take on this view. Here's what a center right party may offer on this view. Uh, so it's, it's actually walking through some of those issues. Now, with some
0: them. of our research here at the Centre of Independent Studies has suggested that um, there's a shift going on in our population. Mm. There was a time when young people were thought to be more left-leaning but then as I got older mm-hmm. moved across. Although our, our research is suggesting that that's not happening as much. Have you noticed amongst your students a, a, a natural, even if they can't put it, put into words, a left-leaning view of the world, progressive, so-called progressive it, view of the world.
1: It's interesting, and, and I, I was quite taken with Matt's, um, Matt Taylor's research, and because the environment that I'm in, people have actually volunteered to serve their country. Okay, so they've actually said, this is the future that I want. I want to be a part of a, a system that's hierarchical, and it's, all, it's got authority, um, and it's actually got orders and commands, not very liberal, really. <laughs> Not very. No, but within that um, within that environment, and I've seen this because of being involved with the university side, where we've actually involved members of the military in some of our conferences, um, it, it's almost an unwillingness to, to think for themselves. But these guys are straight out of high school, as I said before, 18, 19 years old, they're fresh, they're idealistic. Um, but they have that natural conservative side of them because they've actually said, I wanna serve my country. Of course. But we, when we talk more uh, openly about things, and I've, I've obviously got a background in, in politics and a certain yes. um, party side of things, but I don't reveal that too much uh, in, in those discussions. I let them share their thoughts um, with, on, on all ranges, on all range of issues, and that's the, in the tutorial where we sort of have those broader discussions about Australian politics.
0: I was wondering whether they had a. So what you're saying basically, if I'm going to Defence Force, I'll, I'll already be a person with a certain view of the world, and I, and therefore not representative of the wider of the wider community. That's probably right.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little it's not as. It's not as uh, blanket as that. It it is interesting because, you know, we've I come across uh, students who. <laughs> uh will often say they had a pilot's licence before they had a driver's licence. And so there's a lot of rural uh, kids that come through. you. Gotcha. And um, so they've had exposure to, you know, uh, living off the land. Um, self-reliant. Or, exactly. And then they mix in with you kids who have well, been to private schools, there are kids who have been to public schools. Now you so might you might not want to answer this,
0: <laughs> but it's one could say that the, the it looks to me the defence force is slightly woke. <laughs> mm. That's the impression I have, looking yes. on. Yeah. Um, am I right?
1: I think. I think, like any organisation, um, they take seriously the diversity and inclusive yes. um, uh, mantra that is that is certainly prominent uh, in Australia at the moment. And I know a number of serving personnel. Um, and they deserve to work in, a, in a, be comfortable in, a, in their working environment and not feel threatened because of their choices uh, they make in, in life. Um, but I think in the end, um, they are there serving the greater good. They're certainly doing something that you and I um, haven't done. I've got an older brother who serves. Uh, he's a yeah. ranking officer. Um, he makes me salute him when we walk in through the front door. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but I do it anyway. <laughs> but it's certainly... Uh, Something that yes, the language um, w- w- with with certain. I think we talked about this more recently. With the, the way in which organisations are positioning themselves on issues. Um, organisations don't vote, no. but the people within those organisations do.
0: Um, that's true. Although some <laughs> some organisations try and tell us how to vote, but yes. that's another story. <laughs>
1: yes, and I think it's it's backfiring on a few at the moment.
0: Well, maybe so. Now. I can't kind of across. You, you were first, though, um, working for a minister in in in, in Parliament, in, in government. Yes. Chief of staff. Yes. Power and ideals. Mm. You had power of a sort, <laughs> and you had ideals of a sort. Mm. But how does it How do they come together? Is it a matter of compromise? I mean, what what are the challenges, difficulties of actually being in in power, having ideals?
1: Mm. I think importantly for me, I'd actually, it wasn't my first role, I had actually been involved in politics um, in South Australia, then I moved across to Canberra, and I had spent some time in campaigning roles, Right. and then I got into policy, Uh, and I think it's always been the philosophical underpinnings that guided me through most of those roles, in particular in this this role when we were dealing with um, significant reform, which was, workplace relations and welfare reform, so working for Kevin Andrews. Um, there was quite a lot of um, stakeholder engagement in that role, and there was quite a lot of um, ideology as well. there was uh, thrust. You,
0: you, you said you, had, you, what was your ideology? Andrew?
1: I took a very similar view to um, John Howard's on this, that having spent time on energy policy, why wouldn't we consider doing the same for industrial relations, in that let's go for a national system? And that was because um, I, I see myself as an Australian, and John Howard ref, um, reflected on this earlier. He doesn't necessarily, other than when New South Wales and Queensland play each other, yep. he, doesn't, he doesn't necessarily see himself as a New South Welshman, he sees he, he's an Australian. And I, I've often had that view from um, uh, myself in that it's a, it says Australia on my passport. And I often thought we we add unnecessary bureaucratic layers to, to dealing with each other and business. Um, could we not strive for a national industrial relations system? And and that's pretty much what drove me uh, in my early discussions with, with Kevin Andrews. Was this
0: the industrial relations system work choices? Yes. Yes. Which was many say an overreach
1: and many would be right you yes. think so yes and there's there's often uh people who are credit who are credited with being um, an architect of, of work choices well i have to say i think um someone forgot to lay the foundations uh, for that but i it, it was there was overreach it was almost a blind spot but to john howard's credit this was an issue that was front and center of his entire political career
0: industrial relations
1: it wasn't something that he just picked up because polling told him to do it you remember that he actually spent time with his father and grandfather at the family garage in dulwich hill where he would serve customers and his father would deal with government running a small business
0: what was the principle what was the good that 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 led people to think this is the way forward. What, what, what was the good of work choices?
1: Well, I think it was just to continue to actually allow for people to deal directly with their employer. And okay, that, that's where it was a case of just saying to the union movement, your membership is on the decline. People are feeling more and more com- comfortable talking to an employer directly without your, your so you being what, in the what room. So what was the overreach then? Um, the no disadvantage test. I see a
0: few things where where if I don't, if I have an agreement uh, directly with the employer, it could be nonetheless I'm agreeing to to, to sell off some of my rights. Yes. Which which implies that, therefore you imply that individuals are not fully competent to judge their own situation.
1: Well, I think in this instance, it was, I remember Robert Hill saying once, um, going into the 95, uh, excuse me, in 1995, going into the 96 election, when it came to policy, let's not scare the horses. And there was quite a moderate tone, if you like, through a lot of what the, the early Howard government was about. Um, by 2005, six, seven, it was a case of, well, you know, people saying, let's not waste the Senate majority. Let's not do a Fraser. And obviously John Howard was a member of the Fraser cabinet and he was alive right. to that. But there were just people who were pushing very, very hard on let's really go hard on uh, let's go to town on this on this issue,
0: but it fa- it failed because you said the foundations weren't there. What was the foundation that wasn't there?
1: I think the ex- it was it, it just wasn't communicated well, and there there were examples where other part policy reform was explained well. If we look at the GST, and this is what I find fascinating at the moment, if we compare the debate over the voice with the debate over uh, the GST, John Howard and Peter Costello were sitting at the equivalent of a tax exam every day for 18 months, two years, selling the goods and services tax. And there's very little detail that's been provided in the current debate.
0: That's why the outcome was what what it was. Um, It's interesting. Um, This may seem unfair, but I don't think it is. For all his weaknesses, John Howard was a man who argued for a, a policy with, with the GST and successfully, mm-hmm. not as successfully for the work choices you believe. Since then, I don't see much argument going on like that to try and convince people of reform. Mm. That, is that your view of waiting to go
1: We've got a parliament that is uh, full of risk averse parliamentarians. And perhaps this is reflecting the, the makeup of the parliament, there's not enough life experience. And this was a warning that people like Andrew Robb and Gary Gray were making back in the 90s about the types of candidates that were being pre selected and then elected. Uh, they were almost being cut from the same loaf of bread. What was that? Well, just that they have the traditional um, background in, in being a staffer, then being like elected you. to parliament. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I think I would, I've actually gone and done other things. Um, but there is just that, the risk that we do get people who know how to play the game. Um, and that's fine. They know how government works. So there's, a, there's an advantage in those people being in parliament. But we don't have, in my opinion, we don't have the big names, the big hitters, like the Kim Beasleys and the Robert Rays, the, the Peter Paul, Reeves, the Paul Keatings, the Paul Keatings, the Bob Hawks, the John Howards, the Peter Costellos. There were some big hitters through those, you know, the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And, and I think we're poorer for it.
0: Is social media is often blamed for these things? Is yes. this, a, this a problem that gives much less, much less free air to contest ideas? Yes,
1: yes because immediately an idea is shot down. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a disservice to public discourse that we are not willing to have those debates about issues like we used to. But
0: what hope is there then? Because social media is not going to go away, despite what Elon mm. Musk is doing <laughs> to, uh, to X, it's going to stay. So what hope is there for genuine good leadership and policy in, uh, in Australian government?
1: Well, I'm a natural optimist, but I think we have to accept that we're not going to get those people who uh, are necessarily going to give up their promising careers for the greater good of of serving the public by way of being uh, a Member of Parliament. I just can't see that happening in the numbers that we had before. People giving up legal careers, business careers, medical careers, Uh, we're just not going to see it in those numbers and therefore we're not going to have the debates but also people not aware of the history of debates and, and issues.
0: Why did people give up those careers then, but not doing it now?
1: Well, I think you touched on it. Social media has become a far more intrusive yes. element of people's lives, and they're not prepared to put themselves or their families through that as much. And we get those gotcha moments or things that have happened for someone 20, 30 years ago, and they get resurfaced or, you know, you can't. I, I just think we're at, that, we're at a tipping point of, of uh, how far are we going to go? Are we going to sort of pull back at some point? And, you know, we see it with, we s- I even see it at home with, with the, 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 the sort of being glued to the to the phone and life is going on around these people.
0: But surely, I'm trying to think what's, it's not just, so you think it's the, it's the risks associated with public life that have gone up, yep. which is putting people off serving in public life. Mm. Yep. So what we need to do is either lower the risk or get people with a bit more guts.
1: Look, I think there's if you (laughs) may say so, more courage. More courage. I think you're right. If you have those philosophical underpinnings, those values that mean so much to you, and this is where I think we're sort of drifting a little bit in 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 lives um, and and perhaps in society itself, that we're kind of a bit lost. We haven't got those anchors like we used to. And John Howe talks about this quite often in that society is fracturing. It's not fractured, it's fracturing. People don't belong like they used to. They don't belong to sporting clubs like they used to. They don't belong to those organizations that had a socialization element to to them. And for all the advances of technology and and these platforms, I think people were more lonely than they might realize.
0: Were the politicians you worked with genuine idealists? Or were they power rather than ideas? Oh
1: no, I I was fortunate uh, that I worked for two people, two individuals who were very much about reform. They wanted to get things done. Ian McFarlane with with energy and resources, and and Kevin Andrews with with workplace relations and and welfare reform. Both very different in their approaches. I, I can remember. One morning, um, Kevin Andrews was, I, I was in the Treasury uh, building there in Melbourne, a beautiful building, and, and I was working away for a couple of hours and I went and put some things on um, his desk. I wasn't aware he was sitting at his desk. And I said, um, how long have you been here? He goes, I got here at eight o'clock. I said, well, that's two hours ago. Do you think you could let me know you're in the building next time? You would, in contrast, you would, hear, you would hear Ian McFarlane from the car park with his gravel voice so <laughs> saying hello to the security guard. So very different, but both effective in the way they well, went about let, their let business. Let me put,
0: I don't know whether we record this or not, but it could be said that both energy and public rela- and industrial relations are the two areas where the coalition government have failed. I think that... In that energy is now a mess.
1: It is. It was. And
0: industrial it, relations is going the wrong way from yes. from, a, yes. from a liberal point of view. True. I, I mean, a, a not a liberal party point of view. I mean, of those who believe. Oh, yes. in, a, in In a more liberal society.
1: Yeah. Well, it was a civil war that broke out in in energy policy. Um, it, it, it's the graveyard of of people who have um, tried and failed to do something in this. In the this
0: civil war between.
1: Well, just the varying the left and the right debates in 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 pursuing. Renewable energy ahead of uh, fossil fuel reliant um, energy for baseload capacity. So th- it's had some it's had some battles in this area, and the same with workplace relations. I mean, some would say that it's it's even gone further back than perhaps even the Accord days.
0: I'm sure that's true, uh, and and I I, I don't want on on the on energy. It seems to me we are not even at this very day. There's a lack of conviction, lack of consensus and conviction in Australia about the way forward on energy. Yep. There's a lot of it, a lot of push now, and it was the, it was the, it was the very coalition government that seemed to me held back debate in one level, one way. Perhaps not yours, perhaps the one that came
1: after. Um, I think after because we had the energy white paper, uh, securing Australia's energy future, released in 2004, and, and was
0: was climate change an issue for you guys back then?
1: It was, and I think it was certainly, and the cabinet papers that are coming out show that, that the government was um, engaged in the, in the, on the issue. We had obviously Robert Hill going across and dealing with those at the, the foreign, uh, at the international level, the negotiations of, of those agreements. So I think David Kemp was the environment minister uh, and Ian McFarlane. Uh, Nick Minchin was active in, in discussions as well. So there was, there was, it was qu- quite the issue and it came down to the cost of the subsidies, uh, subsidising um, jobs in, in the renewable sector. The argument coming back was- Was well, there a
0: conviction that climate change was a real thing?
1: Um, I think you'll find that, uh, that John Howard has said that it was, it was how you went about it.
0: How you went about in m- tackling m- it. G- yeah.
1: yeah, and there was the emissions trading scheme that he um, had Peter Shergold develop perhaps a bit late in, in, the, in the scheme of things. And that's where Kevin, An- sorry, Kevin Rudd was able to say, well, I'm going to do something about this. You know, the greatest moral uh, yes. ch- challenge of our time. Um, so not caught napping, but just not strong enough arguing the case.
0: So you, have, you paint a rather depressing picture if I might say so. <laughs> You're saying that there were people of ideals and energy back then, although we're saying not, not all was achieved, Mm. And today you're saying we are lacking that. Therefore, we need to somehow find a way to regain people of of integrity and idealism and wisdom, because mm. idealism by itself can be disastrous. Yes. Back into into political life. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I think this is something that I'm exploring through some um, a paper I want to produce here on Howardism, and yes. it, it's something something.
0: That sounds rather bad. What is Howardism? <laughs> I think it's actually good. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah,
1: because what it, it's an Australian blend of conservatism, classical liberalism, statism. And I'm going to throw in policy entrepreneurship. And John Howard had all of those uh, across the, the, the 11 and a half years of, of reform. But underneath all that was a grounding. And right. I think if we explore... We go right back to uh, John Howard, the person. He's a fellow that at nine discovers he's deaf in one year. and at 16 loses his father in his final year of high school but goes on to actually finish his exams and gets into law school. So resilience is building from an early age in this fellow. And then, of course, he joins the Liberal Party at 18, is actively involved in the contest of ideas. He's out there arguing this position and that position, and remembering he was involved in school debates. So he was quick on his feet from an early age. Nothing held him back. He didn't lack that the self-confidence. He took hits left, right and centre, um, you know, it wasn't the greatest sports person, but loved his sport nonetheless and he'd be in there having a go um, and you know just that, that sort of grounding if you like the Methodist upbringing as well with it through his mother um, and his mother becomes you know the, the sole parent if you like for him and, yes. he's, and he's got his older brothers lots of uncles uh, so family becomes very important to John Howard as does the Liberal Party, um, his studies and sport. And so he embarks obviously on a political career, sliding doors, doesn't get Dremoyne, but gets Ben along, and off we go. How,
0: Howdism is a thing, you think?
1: I believe it is, it's, it's, it's worth exploring as, it's a non-ideological concept, but it's a, as I say, it's a blending of existing ideologies, but adding a couple of other dimensions to it to explain his style, if you like, when he was and communicate the communication style of John Howard was a, was a cornerstone um, of his success.
0: I mean, you, I mean, you could say that there, there was a Keatingism or there's a Hawkism or a Fraserism.
1: Uh, no, well, okay, let's um, go uh, no, I, more I mean, Bob Hawke than any of them.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I'm try- what I'm trying to work out is you described a man who's Parliamentary Library you have yes. set up, and which is an amazing thought that Prime Ministers have libraries after uh, like the American Presidents. I'm just trying to work out whether or not Howardism is a thing or merely you're describing a man who's a man's life. If, if it's a thing, it's reproducible in some way.
1: Mm, well, I think we've seen it in... Is it reproducible? ...successes. Yes. So you, you, Howardism after Howard, I believe is real.
0: Okay, what's Howardism to Howard? Well,
1: you see it, you see it in um, the way that Abbott pursued certain policies, um, Morrison to a certain extent, Turnbull not so much, but the, the, just there were certain elements of, of John Howard. Uh, and there's that the great uh, line in, um, in West Wing where there's a little note left on the desk you know, of the incoming Chief of Staff, and it's, you know, what would Leo do? And I think a lot of our uh, post-John Howard leaders would, you know, what would John Howard do? And I think there's just drawing and having the ability to know how to use government.
0: And is, government can be for good. Is, is that because really he is the last successful? I think so. Um, liberal, if not either, Liberal or Labor Prime Minister. Yeah,
1: 11 and a half years. You've, you've done some work. You've, done, you, you, you're not, you've gone to the electorate yes. uh, and, and you've argued your case successfully. People with, with the fullness of time... And we can do that now because it's, uh, you know, we're talking you know, some time since the first election and, and when he finished, there is some time now and you can do that historical analysis.
0: I mean, many people watching this podcast might not have been born.
1: Uh, well, that's, when? That, that's exactly right. right. So when we had John Howard here recently and I had my photo taken with him, I went back to my, uh, my classroom and I showed them. I said, oh, hey, look at this. And they went, who's that? There you are. So I was like, oh. So um,
0: in a way, the way forward for Australian politics, we need not so much what would John Howard do, but new people for their day with some of that mixture that you see that particularly marked
1: him. I, I think it's yes. it's having a sense of um, of history, and this is why prime ministerial libraries are very important, and I think we need more of them, and we need uh, a national framework around. Firstly,
0: what what is a prime ministerial library? Well,
1: it, it's. If we, have a look at, if we have a look at the, the presidential library model, um, it, it's a repository.
0: So all the stuff, all the documents of his time, whoever yes. the Prime Minister was, all that material is, is made available in, in a, a library?
1: Yes, yes. So it's, it's, wow. it's the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library and exhibition. So what the, what the University of New South Wales, Canberra did, and I thought it was uh, quite wise, was approached Mr. Howard back in 2014, saying-
0: After he'd lost office.
1: Yeah, so a good seven years. And it was put to him, would he consider housing his papers at the academy, making them more accessible to students and scholars and researchers and, and journalists uh, than being stuck in, you know, in, a, in a room somewhere that's not, not easy to get to. And he went, no problem, sounds great let's go and that started it we, we then started we start initially with John Howard reading room within the Academy library and then we just <laughs> Tom frame and I over lunch every day what can we do what more can we do what more can we and eventually we decided well we're not gonna ask defense to build us anything because it will never happen
0: exactly and and it would not work a,
1: and and we just oh my I can remember it so well we we just stumbled across a space with an old Parliament House and we both went out to the car park, and I think we should be professional poker players, but we kept a straight face until we got into the car and we whooped it when <laughs> we right. realised just are how good it was.
0: And the, the value of these libraries is so that the time in power of a particular prime minister can be analysed and researched. Yes. What other prime ministers have libraries?
1: So we do know of the Whitlam Institute, yes. the University of Western Sydney, the Curtin Library uh, over in WA. Yep. Um, Bob Hawke's recognised through the University of South Australia, um, Alfred Deakin, of when course. When you say recognised, he's got a library? Yes, a yep, right. uh, Prime Ministerial Centre there. Alfred Deakin, obviously Deakin University, they, um, they have an area there. And more recently, our good friend Georgina Downer has been busily uh, setting up the Robert Menzies Institute within the University of Melbourne.
0: So Labor and Liberal both have libraries?
1: Yes, but not, they're not as extensive as you think. Uh, I, I, think well, I don't think they're expensive at all no, used to me. we have an ad hoc approach right. uh, and I think we could do better and, and I think we're genuinely at risk of losing some of this significant political history if we don't get something put in place uh, and and soon I mean we're not we're probably about five years away from the first lot of Kevin Rudd cabinet papers being released now is that something that anu in Canberra are considering you know and do we recognize julia gillard does adelaide university recognize julia gillard is this a
0: question and um I guess coming back to our theme really theme, a question of being proud of our leaders yeah australians, australians can be very critical of our leaders <laughs> yes we, and, we and and not of them as good as they're a, done and not often without reason but i wonder if being proud of our leaders helps deal that problem we started with that the that the need for people to be of so it's publicly spirited enough to put up with the risks of public life Mm. to take power for the sake of ideas and maybe honoring even those we may disagree with
1: is a way of, of, of establishing a culture of public service again i think that's right and that's that was our thinking around establishing the public leadership research group with responsibility for establishing then the john howard library and so we did some work in that area and, uh, you know, we part, some publications came out with um, some work on the public interest, but more broadly, the series of, of books that we did on the Howard governments. So there were four, um, there's about there's six books in that, in that space now. And remembering at one time, there was more written about Mark Latham than the Howard government. There you are. So that says a lot about the universities and the people um, within them that don't want to sort of be associated with centre-right, but I think it's a shame because students deserve both sides of, of the political ideology. Um, Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Andrew. I've been speaking with Andrew Blythe from uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, previously the manager of the John Howard Ministerial Library, hence all the John Howard material, but also himself doing a doctorate in questions of power and ideals. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This has been another episode in the Liberalism in Question series. I'm Rob Forsyth, thank you for watching.